Hello, everyone. This is Cassie Burns, co-founder of All Your Data. I'm an attorney who's been using AI and machine learning for 10 years. I love data and love talking to people about data, and that's what this podcast is about. Each episode of Cassie and will feature a new guest. Each guest comes from a different background with a different approach and attitude towards technology. We'll talk about their experiences and hopefully we'll learn a thing or two. Thanks for joining. Let's get started with Cassie and Maggie Spicer. Maggie, Maggie Spicer, thank you so much for joining us here today on Cassie and the first thing I want you to do is tell everyone how we know each other and then tell us a little bit about yourself Maggie Spicer absolutely well I'm so excited to be here I'm already a fan of the podcast in its early stages so it's quite the honor to get to be one of the first 10 recorded episodes (laughs) so my name is Maggie Spicer we met I think I mean, it was definitely pre-pandemic, but it's been years now, which is crazy to think about. And I think it was, it was definitely through Instagram, but I think at the time I remember finding you and realizing that we were some of the only lawyers slash beauty bloggers in Washington, DC, where you were living at the time. And so I think I just randomly reached out and asked if you wanted to get coffee and we did and following your content for a long time. So it just was a wonderful kind of in in real life meetup. And since that time, we've obviously had some, both had major life and career changes. You've since moved from DC, um, where I'm still based. And I, our professional orbits are now kind of getting closer in addition to our personal interest in beauty. So that's been really fun to watch. Um, so to back up and give a little context on who I am and what I do, When I first met you, I was working at a very large global law firm doing international trade and supply chains. And I had this interest in sustainability and beauty and just used my blog to have that creative outlet. It was like my happy place away from work. It was just a a way for me to explore the intersection of sustainability and beauty in a way that I didn't feel like was being explored at the time. And so it was around probably 2020 that I decided to take that interest and try to pursue it more professionally with sustainability and supply chains. So I went in-house at Amazon to be their supply chain regulatory counsel. So I essentially just traded one very intense job for a different intense job. (laughs) And then in 2022, decided it was time to take a break and just explore beauty and sustainability more seriously. And so that's when I launched my advisory firm, Source Beauty ESG, where I explore the intersection of technology, which I know we're going to talk about today, which I'm very excited about, sustainability and social impact, which is where the ESG piece of it comes into, and beauty. So really sitting in this triangle of interest areas where 10 years ago, I just really didn't see a lot of engagement, a lot of content, a lot of conversations around how do those three areas interact. And now, as you well know, I feel like it's just exploding. Like it's it's an inevitable part of the conversation. If you're talking about beauty, you have to talk about sustainability. If you talk about sustainability, you have to talk about tech and data. So they all have come into this unique combination. And where I sit is doing a lot of kind of legal, regulatory, creative consulting work. So that's who I am and what I do. It's a lot and it's really interesting and exciting. Like you said, that intersection of beauty, tech, law, I think is is very fascinating for a lot of people and not really talked about too much. I think as professional females, we feel like we can't really talk about beauty things or makeup or anything like that because we'll maybe be seen as less professional. But I've you know reached the point where I just want to embrace it. It's It's our golf. <laughs> like own it, it's lean into up. it. Oh, I love that. <laughs> and, and, uh, you know, we just to, maybe not everyone knows this, but I, as you alluded to, I started up a hobby skincare account on Instagram, like, oh my gosh, five years ago or something like that. And for me, it was a creative outlet similar to you, but also for me, it was a, it was an extension of my professional experiences because I saw in essence, a social media feed as an active learning machine learning tool Mm -hmm. that I use in my day-to-day life at work. 
And for me, I was just very curious, what levers do I pull? How do I engage with this platform that gets rewarded by the platforms? Anyone who's a content creator and says that they don't use AI, yes, you do. You post at certain times, you engage with people a certain way. Any of that, that is you know, an input into an algorithm that you're, yeah. you're trying to get a certain output. So, and yeah, I'm sorry Instagram for the background. Is real. <laughs> it is, it is. And it's so funny because we both, I think have transitioned and focused more time, maybe a little bit on LinkedIn. I'm seeing some of the same lamenting yes. that we saw maybe four years ago on Instagram. I'm seeing it now on LinkedIn. So funny seeing these tech bros dealing with something we dealt with four years ago. <laughs> I'm so up. I totally, this is something that I feel like, especially now that I run my own business, I completely took for granted having a background as a content creator to whatever capacity I can, I can say that my blog was really, you know, creating content. But when I transitioned over into running my own business, I had no idea how to do my own marketing, how to meet clients, like Originally, I, everybody just created a LinkedIn to create a LinkedIn the same way we made Facebook accounts 10 years ago. And I started realizing that the logic was the same if I put out content that was targeted at the companies I wanted to work with and the people that I wanted to get in front of, the algorithm would reward that cycle by putting my content in front of them and they would naturally engage with it. And I have found that LinkedIn has actually been incredibly rewarding in that sense. Like it is a mm -hmm. very predictable platform. It doesn't have a lot of bells and whistles. I mean, they're, they're allowing video now, which is crazy. And I always love seeing how you utilize it. It always gives me new ideas for like, oh yeah, I should embed like a different media type in an update. So the logic is there. It's just a very easy way to use that kind of Instagram training that we got early in our careers for professional yeah. purposes. I feel like being an Instagram, whatever you want to call it, content creator, I felt like that made me such a better attorney. And it's such a weird concept. You just like creating the things, putting yourself out there, just being fearless about reaching out to people saying, hey, you want to collab? It just lets you put it in a different context. And I think because we put ourselves out there posting things, you learn to just ignore the, the potential negative conversation. And I am so sorry. My dog, it's being such a brat right now. Oh, Can I you can't. hear her? I, no. You can't? Oh no. my gosh. She's such a brat. Okay. Well, anyway, <laughs> so to continue on, um, and yes, my dog is featured on my Instagram account, like she is on my LinkedIn mm -hmm. account, but I really feel like having that content creation, it just makes me more creative and more likely to actually go forward and follow through with some of like biz dev, what we would call in the law world or whatever. But I think people are wanting that quote unquote authentic touch. And that's something yeah. that we talked about all the time, skincare, Instagram a while ago. I feel like we learned a lot in those years and yes. it's a great little skill set. And we, we met so many, we, we have a great community. People we're still in touch with. I'm not on it as much as I used to be, but I think being able to meet people from a lot of diverse backgrounds, many of whom similar to us, they're doing it in their free time. So they may be a teacher or they may be a therapist or a nurse yes. or a doctor or anything. And I think we so often get in our little bubble of people we just talk to. And I think that really was a great way to broaden my horizons and engage with like Gen Z more and things like that. So, And I'm so glad you brought up the point of or earlier when you were saying something about, you know, it wasn't something you talk about a ton professionally because it's it's not really seen as a very, I don't know, like a professional hobby or something like that. Like I right. remember- I had friends at my firm who were like, you need to start a beauty blog. Like, please, for the love of God, because we're sick of hearing about skincare. <laughs> None of us know anything about what you're talking about. Like, just go put it on the internet and find find your people. And I did that, but it was always on the – like, I never talked about it at work. And yeah. I, got, I got featured in a news story one time for this charity campaign that I'd put together during COVID. And a bunch of my coworkers saw it and they're like, sorry, what, what is this thing that you do over here in beauty? Like, and I, I just remember thinking like, I kind of had to be hidden because it wasn't prestigious. It wasn't going to, oh, yeah. and then ironically, fast forward, 
when I wanted to then explore, and I feel like we use this word so much now, but like an authentic career path for myself, beauty was the inevitable cornerstone. That was the industry I understood the most. I spoke the Mm -hmm. language. I could translate all of my legal experience into a very specific field with very creative people, not a lot of lawyers who also are quote, quote, beauty people. And it ended up really giving me a leg up when I started reaching out to that network and saying, hey, I'm now doing this sustainability and impact work. And they're like, oh, thank God, because we didn't have anybody that we as an indie brand or as like a startup tech company could reach out to because we just assumed all lawyers were out of our price range or were inaccessible to what we needed. So Mm -hmm. being able to speak those two languages was a huge benefit. I just completely took for granted that it wasn't something I had to hide anymore. Like I could just kind of sell it. And now I'm at a point where I'm like, this is literally the unique combination of things that makes me tick. So it's nice to feel like I can operate with all those pieces on the board. It's very fulfilling. I'm the same way. I didn't I I use a nickname on my my skincare account just because when I set it up, I was very protective of this is me. Mm-hmm. And honestly, it probably was a form of self-therapy in a way. And I needed it to be very private and very mine. And I'm not in that headspace anymore. I think you just have to share it in the way that you feel comfortable with at the time. But I do find it's like a very powerful, engaging conversation point with people. People feel I think relieved that you bring it up because other females that are in high level positions, we want to talk about this stuff too. We're not all serious people. So, um, but we've diverged. Is that I think it's so interesting. um, It's just so interesting to see how you, and I think by some extension myself have used those skills on LinkedIn because it's not just about sharing content because in our kind of spheres, we are the product and service that we are selling. Like, it's not just that we are generic attorneys or legal professionals. It's that we have a unique perspective on the issues we work in. And so we have to be part of the content we put out in these professional platforms. And five years ago, you would never have a picture of yourself on a LinkedIn post. Like it just wouldn't have Mm -hmm. existed. And I, I remember that was like, there was some tension around that. Like when you first started posting that content on LinkedIn, I saw people comment like, oh, this seems very personal. I'm like, yeah, but this is like Cassie, like Cassie is the thing that is being discussed, like Cassie's perspective and experience and it all rolls up together. So right, it's right. evolution. Yeah. And I've, I definitely got a message or two, but at the end of the day, I know there are people that don't want that kind of content, but that's not the audience I'm looking for. Exactly. I know. And I don't, if you don't like it, I don't want like unfollow me, mute me whatever. Together. I don't. <laughs> I, I don't want to annoy you. I, I'm not forcing you. There are people who want to maybe hear what I have to say because I think that there are a lot of people that have the same thoughts, like my brain just wandering in a direction and I want to talk about something. And I like trying to share that so people, other people don't feel like they're thinking those things alone. If that content is annoying to you, please. I, like, I don't want to annoy anyone. Like, right. as much as there's one person who doesn't, right. If the only audience is me, I'm perfectly happy with that. <laughs> So uh, that's kind of, yeah, there we go. (laughs) But let's talk a little bit about your consulting company again. I feel like ESG is kind of like chat GPT. People throw out the letters, but no one's really explaining what it is. So Maggie, please explain to me what ESG is. I don't know if I really know. (laughs) So it stands for environmental, social, and governance. Just as a baseline, here's the alphabet soup. So It overlaps with a lot of other acronyms that you might have heard of, like CSR, Corporate Social Responsibility. It's an investment term. ESG is used by the investment community to assess impact and sustainability metrics. So ESG is kind of everybody's favorite and least favorite way of assessing impact because it's such a broad umbrella. I use it because a lot of the companies that I target and I work with know that that is a larger framework for the issues that they come to me for. So within E, within environment, that's where you see things like environmental sustainability. So for beauty, it can be packaging, it can be 
the aquatic toxicity of your ingredients. It, it's really what is the impact on the environment? Social can be things like uh, what are the human rights policies around the sourcing that you're doing? What are it's the human? It's the human element. And then governance is all the boring stuff. So it's kind of just like corporate best practices. And it it's funny to me how politicized ESG is becoming, because if you looked at an ESG report for a lot of big global companies, 95% of what they're talking about, in my mind, is not very controversial. But there are these very specific niche issues that also roll up into ESG that people get kind of up in arms about. And I won't get into the basis for why they don't like it, but it's helpful to know that ESG in and of itself is just a way to refer to a very large bucket of issues that companies have to address on the environment, on their people, and how their company is run. And it makes sense that ESG, this concept, is is a fairly big issue in beauty. Just as a consumer, I've seen the whole spectrum in, in, in a consumer who is maybe a little bit more focused on beauty brands than your normal consumer, just from being on the, the Instagram cycle. The clean beauty trend was huge. And then there was like things about like greenwashing and things like that. So I'm sure that that's a driving force for many brands around ESG. Is that right? Yeah. So there's, I think, a growing trend of consumer education around not just what is the product you're selling me, but how do you as a company operate? How do you make the product? What goes into the product? What are the policies around the people that you employ and your effect on the larger world. So I I see a growing interest in consumers in the beauty space. They want to know more about the company and the products that they're making. I think there's also a lot of pushback because consumers are very much being fed a lot of different marketing narratives. And we saw this with Clean Beauty where it was there was a very, I think, strong substantiation for a lot of the issues that happened to come up that started the clean beauty movement. But then as it was co-opted by a lot of high profile brands who realized like this is a great marketing strategy, it became very fear mongering focused, very us versus them in terms of if you're not a clean brand, you're a toxic brand. And it wasn't driven by the science, which was unfortunate um, because I think there were probably a lot of very legitimate issues that were kind of at the beginning of the conversation. And we're now starting to see what the next wave of kind of the clean beauty evolution can look like. And that's where I come in. I don't focus so much on the clean side of beauty because a lot of that is around ingredient safety. And I very much believe in like playing in your own sandbox. I am not a chemist. I am not a toxicologist. I have no academic basis to assess the literature on the safety of ingredients. What I have a background in and where I kind of come in is understanding what is the human impact and what is the environmental and sustainability impact of the product. So I'm looking at the same question, but I'm assessing it from a different lens. Bringing up the comment you made about the cycle of clean beauty, there was a heavy wave of fear mongering that came out. I mean, my goodness, if anything had a chemical, it was going to burn your face off. But we're seeing everything everything is made of chemicals. (laughs) Right. Come on. Water is a chemical. I know. You're either selling me air or you're selling me chemicals. One or the other. Right. But we're seeing the same thing with emerging tech too, right? There's a lot of fear mongering, at least in the hype cycle that, that we're seeing. So how are you, as you're engaging with your clients in the beauty world, focused on ESG, how are they starting to look at emerging technologies to help them navigate these waters? I will say for the clients that I work with, there is no fear of technology. They are fully on board with finding the right kind of tech for their goals. And it's just really exciting to me to see how everybody's finding a different technology solution for their particular kind of selling point. So I'll give you a couple examples because I think there's a real variety here that you will find interesting. So Mm. for brands, so for beauty brands, just you go into Target, you find something on the shelf. What is that brand using in terms of emerging tech? 
a lot of them are working with contract manufacturers to create products. A lot of brands, unless you're quite big, don't really make the products themselves. And they are using these emerging technology platforms to help address the data problem around if I as a brand want to sell at Sephora, Clean at Sephora has a very specific set of standards for ingredients. How do I know what those ingredients are? How do I implement those restrictions into my product development process? That's all AI for some of these platforms. There are companies like Novi and Goodface that are using proprietary technology to help brands say, I want to sell in these markets. I want to sell to these retailers. Punch it in and tell me what I can and can't do. So the brands are getting access to these tools. The platforms themselves are finding ways of helping brands create products, which is really the economic driver behind the beauty industry, obviously, is the creation of these beauty products. And then there are platforms like a company called Provenance. They use blockchain to help brands substantiate their impact claims. So now I'm a, I'm a brand. I've created a product. I want to be able to tell consumers that it's vegan, but I don't just want to put vegan on the box. I want to say I'm certified by the vegan association. As a consumer, there's a lot of skepticism around like, are you vegan though? Like, how do I know? I can read the inky list, but like, how do I really know you've been certified? So Provenance will create a blockchain record of the paperwork that you got from the vegan society or whatever organization it is, and they will upload it to a retailer's website, to your website as a brand, and they give consumers access to documentation that they wouldn't be able to get. So there's like the brand side and there's the platform side, and then you've got ingredient suppliers. And this is where the science is really taking off because you have raw material suppliers Some companies that I work with are are in the raw material space, and they want to conduct life cycle assessments of their products so that they can explain their sustainability impact. And then you've got biotech companies that are, I mean, these are being acquired a mile a minute by these big conglomerates because they're using things like precision fermentation to make synthetic versions of natural ingredients that maybe aren't sustainable or have harmful effects on the environment, like palm oil, for example. There is a company called C16 that uses ferment, like precision fermentation to create a synthetic palm oil that structurally looks and acts and feels like palm oil, but you didn't have to cut down a tree and harm an orangutan's environment to get it. So literally every piece of the industry right now is exploring new new sides of technology. The blockchain reference, you know, hooked me because we talked about this. I reached out to you a few, I don't even remember when. I was like, Maggie, do you know about <laughs> NFTs and blockchain? Because you should, because I think it's up your alley. Are you seeing more companies interested in that immutable ledger's ability to really validate claims? Or or do you think that that's the way that a lot of brands are going to start going or even large retailers are going to start requiring brands to go? Yeah, that's a great point. So yes. Uh, And there there are two kind of sides to this that I see as big emerging trends. The first is at the high level where you have very consumer focused messaging. Blockchain has been an incredible tool for validating claims. Because at the end of the day, no brand wants to be accused of greenwashing. There is so much consumer skepticism. But on the flip side, consumers want more responsibly created products. So they're demanding they're demanding things of brands that they then are very skeptical of when the brands try to say, like, but we did the thing that you asked for. And so blockchain, like the one that Provenance has created, Those blockchain records are really becoming the bridge between what a brand is doing and what they say they're doing. And I think as consumers become more savvy as to how to understand those records and engage with them, I mean, they're pretty straightforward, but still, it's it's not intuitive the first time you use it that that the information is available. I think that'll become much more the norm. I also see it on the back end if we're talking as a supply chain lawyer, if you're looking upstream, so the raw materials that are going into your products, there is a huge explosion of growth in terms of blockchain-based 
traceability technology. So companies like SourceMap, who are creating these records of supply chains, and you have now suppliers that are in these networks that SourceMap can track, that's creating a huge benefit to companies who really are trying to ethically source the materials that are going into their products. We see this a lot more in the food and apparel sectors. So it really started over there, but it's creeping into beauty more and more. And I think once those concepts were proven for the big industries, so for food and apparel, beauty started to take notice. And where there is such a focus on natural ingredients, it is a normal evolution that tech would make sense for beauty as well. Damon, my husband, is an artist and he's a huge NFT skeptic. He's just like, I don't get it. It just seems... I don't get it, you know, <laughs> and it was the explanation of, of validation and especially in, in the use of supply chain and validating, yes, the ingredients really came from here. This is these, it is this type of ingredient. It is this ethically hired labor. And that's for him, that's where he saw the value. And I think it, it's a very compelling use case for for people. It's not just scammy art or anything. It's going to work in every situation. I mean, I think as global supply chains become more complex, it makes sense that we're constantly testing out the waters to see what's going to work and what doesn't work and what is scalable and what works for beauty that doesn't work for food. And every supply chain is unique in that sense. So finding different solutions is going to require some experimentation. And so maybe one one piece of tech isn't isn't going to pan out long term, but I think the process of exploration is really important and what it's making us all aware of is the complexity of global supply chains and understanding that from an impact perspective, so the the kind of conversations that I'm in is helping brands understand how to engage in their supply chains more than they've had access to in the past. Because previously, you might have a contract manufacturer, you'd go to them, you'd say, I'd like a product that does this, and they'd give you that product. And you don't own the IP, you don't necessarily have a lot of hands in how the ingredients are sourced and the packaging components that you're getting, you're buying a lot of off-the-shelf materials. And I think as brands are getting pushback from consumers, the consumers want to know. So it means the brands have to know. And that means they have to ask their suppliers. And the supplier side is really where it's you face that brick wall because the suppliers have no incentive to provide you that data. Right. But now that there's this shift in demand, they're starting to wake up to say like, oh, actually, like it's important for us to be able to track the greenhouse gas emissions for our pa- the packaging we're selling to brands because Sephora is reporting its scope three emissions, which means the brands need the data. So it's kind of a market-driven problem that like tech is starting to provide solutions to. You just don't think about how things like blockchain or AI may be really helping the very root of the beauty, the core elements of the beauty industry. Now, are you seeing many brands, and, and maybe you're not talking to them about these things, but are you seeing much chatter about the use of NFTs from a loyalty basis or social tokens or anything like that? So NFTs don't seem, at least from in my purview, NFTs really don't come up. Where I do see there being some larger brands, so like the L'Oreal's, the P&G, like the big companies, where they're really starting to explore is what does it look like to create a digital environment for our target consumers to exist and like engage with our products in. So creating digital spaces where a consumer can come in and engage with the kind of messaging of the brand. And then there are a lot of companies like the perfect, perfect corp or perfect company where they're using AI to create virtual try on experiences. And there is an interesting message that they're selling this around, which is it's more sustainable to have a thousand consumers virtually try on a lipstick than to create a thousand testers in either individual testers or however many uses you're going to get out of one lipstick tester. So they're trying to use a sustainability package to sell this virtual try on technology. So I haven't seen NFTs 
enter that conversation as much, but there's definitely a, an exploration of how do we engage with consumers to either build brand loyalty, help them understand the brand messaging, or engage even in a virtual way with the products themselves. Yeah, I can see how AR or VR, augmented reality or virtual reality would be a stronger hook for the beauty world. I mean, just what, yeah. like last week, I think Fenty Beauty announced a competition in Roblox where you can go in and yeah. and design a, a, what is it, gloss bomb. I can't remember the name of the product, but I think that a lot of the chatter around the metaverse has died down. It was overhyped for sure, but I do feel like beauty is one area where it's still getting played around with it, it at the very least from a try on perspective, or yeah. I've also heard of skincare, you in essence, having a digital twin and trying on skincare products, your digital twin to test the efficacy of a product before actually trying it on your own skin. So yeah, there's, there's some interesting issues. So two things that I'll say is the first one is, Yes, I feel like there's always an explosion of interest in things like the metaverse, and then it quiets down. But then there's like one nugget that sticks around, and it's not loud, but it's there, and it's it's permeating the industry. And I think virtual try-ons using augmented reality is probably not going to go anywhere. Even if I was in the even if I was in a store, I went to the Estee Lauder counter. I wanted to try on ten different lipsticks. I would much rather do that using a camera than having to like especially post COVID, like I don't want to touch yeah. sample. I mean, they don't have samples out anymore <laughs> no, anyway, so it doesn't right. matter. But I actually think that is something where there was so much interest in all these different virtual things. And then the nugget that will probably stick around in my perspective is that virtual try-on experience. On the flip side, so that was kind of color cosmetics. That makes a lot of sense. I have a lot of skepticism around the practical realities and the ethical considerations of using that tech for skincare because skincare is not something that typically acts instantaneously. Like skincare products need to be used over time. They will react to different types of skin that a camera cannot necessarily understand. They can't tell if you have sensitive skin. It can tell if you have redness, but it doesn't mm -hmm. know your it doesn't know the way that you will interact with a product. And I feel like I just saw this thing. There's like an Instagram filter that will show you a side by side of your face now and a face and your your face in like 20 years with kind of wrinkles. They're finding ways of reemphasizing this narrative of fighting aging. Look how old you're going to look. You need to alter your appearance using augmented reality. And it was bad enough when we had Instagram filters that all of a sudden everybody looked like 10% more beautiful. And then you look at in real life, you're like, oh, I can't make myself look like there's no amount of skincare and makeup that's going to make me look like me with a filter on. So there's right. a real danger, especially for younger consumers, that when we see technology reflecting back an image of ourselves that is unrealistic or just slightly uncanny valley off of what we can achieve it can be very dangerous and very harmful. And so I think there are a lot of considerations of how do we use this emerging tech responsibly and not just end up back in the cycle that so many of us have found ourselves in, which is I open a magazine or I watch a commercial and I'm just shown better versions of myself that I can't achieve in real life. There's so many amazing things we can do with this tech that I don't want that's the side that's the side of it that I'm like oh let's let's not fall into that trap. And we know there have been studies of algorithmic bias and in the harm it mm -hmm. can cause and it's not uncommon for people of darker skin tones to there is a AI based analysis that it's not sufficiently trained for maybe people with darker skin tones. There was some some algorithm that was based on diagnosing, I think, skin cancers or things like that. Yes. And it just wasn't sufficiently trained. Like the data yes. set wasn't diverse, literally was not diverse enough. And in that instance, it, it could have some real harm to people. And on the other side, we, we have a history of marketing that is catered towards 
consumers with paler skin and that if there's not really the time taken into really making sure that any sort of bias is minimized, it just further exacerbates a group of people that had been underrepresented yet again with technologies. That's my hesitation with it. How well was that that algorithm trained? But so it's like it's only as good as the, it's like, you know, garbage in, garbage out. If you if you have technology that's developed it's always going to reflect the inherent biases of the people who develop it. And I think it's just important for us to not allow ourselves to think that the tech is perfect where we are imperfect as a society and the culture. So we have to constantly be pushing back where maybe 20 years ago was us pushing back against the narrative that we saw in magazines and anti-aging products. Now it's how are we checking the data going into these platforms and how are we checking the tech itself to make sure that we're kind of progressing in in a way that is inclusive and is reflective of the diverse world that we live in right right like let's let's not let's not backstep let's keep moving forward you know (laughs) let let's keep keep the progress going well i want to hear a little bit about how how you're using AI in your own business. You're, you're a small business owner. You started up your own business, you know, a year or two ago. Are you someone, like, let's be real. Are you using AI? Are you like, oh gosh, it takes a little bit of time for me to deal with it. I can just do it on my own. You know, because I, I really do want to have real conversations. I think there's a yeah. lot of oversimplification of how perfect these tools make our lives. And sometimes it takes a while for you to kind of figure out how to use it. So how are you using it if you are, Maggie? I would say I'm a minimal user uh, in my own professional practice, even though so many of my clients are either technology companies or they're companies who are engaging with technology. I, I like the process of, I like the struggle of creating the content that I put out and doing the assessments of the work. A lot of the social impact narratives that I work with companies on are data driven. So the data is always there. But in terms of my process and kind of my value add, it's 99% my brain, I would say, and maybe 1% Google. <laughs> and <laughs> I'm kind of okay with that right now. I think I might get to a stage in my business where, you know, I want to develop a new business plan. Maybe I'll, I'll explore like chat GPT, make me a business plan. But especially because I've been in such a rigorous structured legal environments for so much of my career. I'm enjoying the creative flexibility of I'll do something and then the next time I do it, it's different. And then the next time I do it, it's different again. Even writing proposals for potential clients, I am sure there is tech out there that could help me make this more streamlined. But I use very basic to I mean, I use LinkedIn and I use Canva and that's kind of an Excel. I use a lot of Excel sheets. I love all of those. That's like my tech my tech bubble and it hasn't changed much in the last year. But I I like that. I will explore in the future using contractors a little bit more because there have been data, there have been research projects that I've done for clients where I think actually like having some data to back up the intuitive or legal basis that I'm giving you would be really helpful. So I hired somebody once to do a data scrape of a retailer's website. So I said, I want to know every brand that this retailer is selling. I want to know every product they're selling and I need to know the average price point. That would have taken, I don't even want to know how long that would have taken me. And I found somebody on Upwork and they did it in two hours. So I, I can't say I'm using AI in the way that I think of it, but I'm sure there is AI underlying a lot of these tools that I use. Canva keeps telling me it can Man. it can use chat GPT to create content for me. So maybe one day I'll accidentally hit the button and find out what it'll do. I've used the the text to generate images yes. before. And yes. it's not, you know, you, you have to write that again. You you have to it, it's not it as I as we say, you know, at my job, we it's not a, a magic wand that like you wave it and it makes everything in, even though a lot of them use magic wand icons. <laughs> it takes a little bit more work to do it. Some of it is like you do need to work at it to make your quote unquote prompt engineering better. There's so much potential out there. I'm not necessarily against it, but I am also in a lot of aspects of my life a complete Luddite. Like I will never have an, an Alexa or a, like a smart device in our home because I've been on the other side of those companies and I've listened to the recordings that the legal team has to get. It's just, 
it's not something I'm comfortable with. I kind of like existing outside of that. While I fully recognize how convenient it would be to just say lights on and the lights turn on. Yeah. So I, I bring the struggle upon myself, much to the chagrin of my husband, but it's something where I don't mind walking 10 feet to turn the light switch on. So there's some things I'm just happy to happy to embrace. So here's my thing. I have one in my bedroom. I don't have one in my office for legal privilege reasons. Yes. I really want to know that someone's coming in and murdering me in my bedroom. I want it. <laughs> I want to alert Alexa and Alexa's going to help solve the case. That's really what yeah. I want to happen. Right. So I can't I cannot argue with you there. That's I mean, I feel like <laughs> There's a lot of danger with AI, but I feel like women, if you're going to commit a crime against people, it's really hard to do it and get away with it now. There's so much digital evidence, and I know this is veering off topic, but <laughs> I it gives me some comfort. I, if someone's going to do something to me, they're probably going to get caught. If, it, if it's not my hair being everywhere in their car after me getting kidnapped, it's going to be metadata that that solves the case so yes I think the eth and this is where I think we could have a whole separate conversation around just being lawyers and the way we think about this I think about so much of what I think about is what are the protections that I have because everything that I do in the context of a consumer focused business like Amazon is data for them. It's value for them. So how are they capitalizing on what they're getting from me and what I'm giving to them? And what mm -hmm. are the protections that are in place that will clearly explain to me what they can and cannot do with what they've what they've taken? And even if it's just digital recordings of me talking in my home, I feel like in Europe, we see so many interesting consumer protection trends around GDPR and even things like antitrust litigation. But there is such a focus on consumer protection. And in the US, we're so much more business friendly. We kind of allow business to lead and regulation to follow. And consumers get lost in the mix a little bit. So I just have never felt comfortable enough with the company producing the tech to know where I stand in the value chain of what what are you gathering from me? And if I'm okay with you having it, what's the value you're giving me? Because I don't, you don't need to make another dollar off of me. Like you've already profited significantly uh, just in terms of my day-to-day -day shopping habits and the content I consume. So it, it, when it becomes a market-based transaction, I want to know that I'm being adequately compensated for the data that you are gathering from me. I mean, and that's potentially the the future that Web3 promises too. And again, like that, that's a great like other episode where that is the, the theory behind Web3 that kind of you'll own your own data because you're yeah. engaging with online websites yep. and you're not logging in with their login activity. You're logging in with like your wallet, your digital wallet. And because you're the one that you're the one that holds the keys and it's going from place to place. So you're the one that's in theory, that's tracking all of that. Now, I know that there are systems out there that track wallet activities. We're living in a data economy and yeah. it, it's the oil boom, but it's data. And I think that people are becoming more and more aware of it and maybe will demand more protection. We're definitely seeing that with the AI regulations. Of course, EU roll, rolling out their AI Act much faster, but there's a lot more scrutiny on the U.S. side at a federal level regarding AI regulation, even though we don't have a federal privacy law. I think in some way, how much of it is political theater and how much will actually result in an actual regulatory act, I don't know. Privacy is very wrapped up in these discussions about AI ethics and AI regulation. So that might be the hook that brings in a federal data privacy law in the U.S., yeah. but I mean, on the beauty side, there's, you know, there's good and there's bad to it. All that data means that the market for personalized, tailored products is growing rapidly. So things like shade matching are becoming much more data driven, where we used to see brands think it was acceptable to roll out with 10 shades of a foundation and nine of them were for very light Caucasian skin. Right Now brands are able to really ingest data to say, it's not enough to say that we have 
five shades for light skin, five shades for dark skin, it really needs to capture the aesthetic data points that those skin types need in terms of like the chemical components that are going into the product. On the flip side, though, I know we both just engaged with some content on this about influencers who sign over with maybe without realizing mm-hmm. it their likenesses when they're doing things like sponsored content. Yeah, read sudden, those contracts. Yeah, but even I, as somebody who is a lawyer who works in the beauty industry, who sometimes does brand partnerships, I would not have looked at some of those contracts probably and understood the full extent of what a brand might be able to use my image to do. And we are entering into a very new territory of a tweak here and there can all of a sudden be a complete distortion of someone's image, which can then turn into an endorsement of a completely different message or product. So right. for beauty, I feel like it is just it's this huge. Whole new, it's huge. It's a whole new space. And I think the ethics and privacy around your data is just as important in beauty as it is anywhere else, if not more so, because beauty and personal care can be incredibly I mean, it's personal care. It can be incredibly personal. It can relate to your reproductive health, which in the United States is a terrifying thought. It can relate to the types of preferences that you, as a person who is trying to reflect a certain image of yourself, are putting out. And that's those are really personal decisions. So I feel like it's becoming a, a bigger conversation for us to have around what are those data points we're willing to just put out in the universe and what should brands be saying? Like, oh, actually, this is how, this is how we're going to use your data, or if we're using it at all, how we're going to protect it. And to give the audience a little bit of background, there was someone on Instagram. She signed up for a campaign, and a lot of times these Instagram campaigns, you'll agree to get product, and you may get it for free, and you agree to post a review or something. And sometimes yeah. you get paid. It just depends on what the brand is Pretty willing hard. to do all of it and there was a provision in the, in this person in the contract this person signed that let the brand use the photos that she created and posted for that specific campaign they were ultimately able to use it in packaging so she's rolling up into a store and there's a photo of her on this product packaging and that, of course, I responded to that and said, listen, don't always review your contracts, but really now in the age of generative AI, be mindful of what you're giving away, what rights you're giving away regarding your likeness, because they could be giving themselves the right to use your likeness in any manner in perpetuity. Yeah. And it, you just need to know that. And I would even say if you're getting headshots somewhere, not everyone's like, signing up for for brand campaigns but people may be getting headshots if you're ever doing anything and you're using your photo like how is that photo of you being used just just this is the world we live in honestly well we started with instagram we're ending with instagram maggie yes (laughs) (laughs) it's full circle What kind of closing piece of advice would you give to a new brand starting out, particularly in that ESG space and or emerging tech? Yeah. So I think the big the big question that brands need to ask themselves is the why piece. Why am I doing what I'm doing? Why am I making the products that I'm making? Why am I targeting this audience for these products? It's a about building a very authentic story around yourself, because that is going to then drive the tech that makes sense for you. So the biggest concern I hear from brands is I'm too small, even brands that aren't that small. I don't know how to engage with all this emerging technology. It's too overwhelming. And they're coming to me, obviously, in the context of I I have these sustainable and social impact goals. I don't know how to accomplish them. I feel like technology should be helping me. I just don't know how to do it. If you go back to that why question, it can really help you narrow down a very wide universe of options. So if you're saying, my why is to make a Gen Z consumer feel empowered to embrace their authentic physical appearance through using these beauty products, then that's going to drive you to be using technology that doesn't necessarily alter appearances, but is going to be 
utilized on TikTok, for example, or it's going to be something that creates an environment, even in a digital space, that appeals to that particular consumer and makes sense for your products. Larger companies have been really focused on the greenwashing issue around their external marketing, and especially companies who are doing the work are incredibly frustrated because they're like, everybody's out here saying that they're green and sustainable. I've been over here direct sourcing from farms for 15 years. I've been doing the work. And yet these guys are getting a leg up because they are just running rampant with their marketing claims. That that company's why should be driving them towards looking at like a provenance, for example, finding a tech platform that will help them validate their claims. It's not going to revamp their business. It's not going to revamp their products, but it's going to help them make a clearer picture of what they're already doing to the consumer that they want to sell to who is conscious of environmental and social impact. So I think if you understand that why that makes sense to you as a brand, it can really help you start to figure out, okay, within all these emerging tech platforms and tools that I can be using, what serves my why the best and how can I use it in a way that makes sense for me and my consumer? That is really excellent advice, Maggie, because I think you really hit the nail on the head. Sometimes it can be overwhelming. There's a lot of technology out there. And I think just centering and grounding yourself is like, what is your core purpose and what can be used to help you accomplish that purpose mm -hmm. is, is really, I think, very excellent advice to give. Maggie, thank you so much for joining us today on this episode yes. of Cassie and I really enjoyed it. I reached out to you right away. I wanted you to be a guest. I really enjoyed hearing what you had to say about emerging technology in the space of ESG and beauty. I know I've learned a few things and I hope the audience has too. And to our audience, thank you all for joining, listening, and keep an eye out for the next episode of Cassie and...